you have stumbled into another episode of Full Contact Cannabis. And I have my co-host, Mark Stepp, with me. And I'm with JT Bedard. Is that how you spell your last name? It is. It's Bedard, B-E-D-A-R. Yeah. Hey, would you rather go by JT or Joel? Uh, probably Joel for the sake of uh, professionalism. All right, Joel. And we're sitting here uh, talking with Joel, who is a, oh gosh, he was there doing hemp before it was cool. Uh, that's about the best way I can put it. And so I haven't talked to Joel in a long time. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, man. You know, uh, it's uh tail end of a, a really strange decade, I feel. And uh, I had some burnout a few years back and decided that if I was going to reinvent myself, it was going to be more of a uh, from the sidelines, from the shadows and, and offload as much knowledge and experience as I've accumulated over nearly four decades in cannabis. You know, I, I do appreciate the opportunity to uh, to catch up here, Jarbo, and uh, my best to you and Lee and, of course, Latanya. You guys have been uh, setting a grand pace, and I've been following you for years, and I'm extremely proud to, uh, to, to know that you and I spoke so many years ago and that you're still keeping at it. So how many years have you been doing cannabis, and when did you get into it? I describe it as I first planted a seed back in 1985, I think it was, or 84, and when I graduated from high school in 86 and attended the University of Vermont, I, I commenced growing effectively in, in the clandestine style and have ever since. So we're pushing 38 years. Uh, my undergrad is in agriculture, uh, College of Ag and terrestrial ecology with plant and soil science and agriculture and resource economics. My graduate work was at UNH, another land grant in water resources management. I am a certified soil scientist. I am a certified wetland scientist. I've done a good decade plus in natural resources and agricultural resources before entering the corporate realm. But I've uh, continued my relationship with cannabis from when a lot of people describe having their grow room, I describe it as my lab because I like to, uh, I like to see what the plant gives. And I, I like to learn more than just uh, how many pounds I can pump out. So I've been, <laughs> I've been at it for a while, my friend. You are the first cannabis grower we've had from the East Coast. And this is awesome because this is the thing. When I got into a cannabis is, you know, sadly further back you, but it was hard to know yeah. what anybody was doing in another section. And the only section that ever really got any press was the West Coast or Colorado. Oh, yeah. But I kept hearing inklings that in Vermont, you guys were doing some way cool things. And it was like little snippets you would see in high times. Back in the mid 80s, what was the cannabis scene like in Vermont? I, I'd say there are a lot of legacy folks that are still in the woodwork. When, when Vermont really kind of resettled itself, there were a lot of uh, people who tuned in, turned on and dropped out. And we had a lot of the, uh, the, the 60s hippie generation move into Vermont and they still hide in the hills. So it's got to be interesting in the next year when recreational adult use becomes fully legit and everyone's coming out of the woodwork. You know, we talk about Indiana bubblegum. The, the famous bubblegum variety was uh, rumored to be from Vermont. Uh, we've got something called ADK gold, Adirondack gold, which is actually Acapulco gold that was nativized to the Adirondacks. Uh, strawberry cough was theoretically from uh, Vermont. The breeder Soma was from Vermont. You know, New England itself could fit into a lot of these states. So I, I have to give credit to uh, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine as well. One of the things that was intrigued me was 
early on because I started growing clandestinely in Indiana and we got slammed with the same problems. We had genetics that would not want to finish. Vermont suffered from that even worse than we did. And so one of the first things I heard about Vermont is you guys were one of the first people to come in and get Afghani and start doing crosses. Yep. <laughs> Just out of necessity. Yeah, there's a lot of legacy Afghani around here that if I if I were to really poke around and uh, ask a few friends of a few friends, I've seen it floating around where, you know, there are Afghanis that have been uh, inbred here for 20, 30 plus years. With all this legacy, you guys had med by the time that you legalized hemp in Vermont, didn't you? The whole, the whole hemp scene in Vermont was kind of weird in that uh, we actually passed a, a law in Vermont in 2013 to allow for the cultivation of hemp, but it wasn't aligned with the federal laws. And I, I did a lot of uh, legislative work to try and align those things. But it, for me, and, and I don't think anyone ever really put it together or really acknowledged that when I went into hemp, I was not going after cannabinoids because I, you know, I can get all the cannabinoids I want from, from the real stuff. And I never saw CBD as anything more as kind of a blip on the radar. And it, it, it you know, I knew having read the rules and understood how government works, that it simply was not going to be the overgrow event that everyone thought it was going to be, that the, the farm bill was not going to be the, uh, the thing, the turning point for ending prohibition. I was a fiber and grain person out of the gates, and I registered research directly with the DEA to research uh, some applied, applied aspects of, of hemp out in the field and I, I grew a lot of uh, grain and fiber hemp and worked with Victory Hemp and a number of other uh, existing entities. And what ended up happening was it just became, uh, I, I became something of a target because people didn't want someone involved in cannabis that wasn't growing for cannabinoids. I don't know if it was a guilt thing where they didn't want someone to be clean <laughs> and doing it by the rules, or if it was a the suspicion that I was somehow trying to, uh, to, to game the system to my advantage. So it just became grueling to not only have to fight forward, but to have to fight behind me and, and at the flanks. And, and finally, it just became a, uh, a situation where, as I'm sure we've all seen, it became a situation where it was just kind of not fun anymore. There were times where you know, is this what I've spent 35, 40 years doing and advocating for? I've since taken a little more philosophical approach to it all. And I've said, okay, I'll work on supply chain aspect of hemp on one side. And, you know, I started getting called back into the adult use, the recreational world. So I'm aligning with uh, folks in Vermont and Massachusetts and Maine and, and now New York State. And uh, we're going to see about trying to not have the same problematic experiences that some of the western states are having with regards to the uh the 20 dollar ounces and and the glut of of cannabis being dumped on the market it's a big story man you know that and well the, the thing that gets me is and let's go back yeah uh because this, it, it, i don't know maybe i'm naive but i keep thinking if we can look back and see all the problems with cannabis are reoccurring themes yeah and, and one of the reoccurring themes that has been with me, and I got in real early. Well, in 2015, I tried. I started attending the Tennessee Hemp Industry meetings, yep. and 
and immediately saw that I was like back in high school. Yep. It was a big giant click. And then the other thing that was painfully aware to me that this group, although it said it was Hemp Industries Association, really did not want to have anything to do with the industry of hemp. Yeah, you're not wrong. There, there are some people there that I ended up at, uh, at loggerheads with that I, I think, absent the subject matter, I probably would have been good friends with. But it's just there was so much shade and schadenfreude and just it was it was weird. And I really don't want to have to revisit that. So I've, I've been trying to isolate myself a little bit more and not, not be as exposed, not be the lightning rod. But yeah, man, no, it, it truly, we, you know, I went to one of those big conferences once and I will not go back. I was asked to speak and I didn't, I, I, I took a pass because I wanted to understand the landscape and I'm glad that I did. I, I walked into one meeting and the individual who was largely responsible for tanking the national uh, association that you referred to, which you referred was up there and stating that they were incremented, that they were extremely important in the passing of hemp regulations in the state of Vermont. And I'm like, who the Pardon my language. Who who who's this person? I got up and walked out. I'd never met this person. Nobody I knew had ever heard of this person, and and they're up there like thumping their chest over something that they didn't do. And I'm like, this is just, it, it was just so weird. But yeah, and it's and it's going on, but thankfully it seems to be thinning out. I think we're finally starting to see uh, some of the upper, the upper crust uh, coming into the conversation. The the folks that have been needed all the time, but that, that still, that still remains the, uh, I don't know how you want to describe it, Jarbo, but it, it's, it's, it's the perpetuation of bad information and it's utilized to maintain control of the narrative. Uh, uh, totally. That's and seeing that bang, because that's what it seemed like is in that if we control the narrative and whatever, then we can have this elevated place in in the industry and the thing that got me was is that maybe i could understood eight years ago this whole thing that we're going to be an advocate you know we're about awareness and advocacy and that sort of thing but soon as actual people started making money off this crop oh yeah forget about it basically they were anachronism yeah the addiction to expos, or I don't even know how to put that, but the, the proliferation of expos, which was totally de dependent upon basically a lot of misinformation and yeah. selling, pro selling products and machine and equipment that had never even been tested. Oh, yeah. 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 No, it's uh, it, it became uh the, the tail wagging this dog has been the, the soapbox, ownership of the soapbox and ownership of the microphone. And these things, uh, they, they, they control a, an undue or an inordinate amount of oxygen. And it's, it's unfortunate, but by the same token, by tagging out and just saying, look, I'm not interested in playing by your rules. I can get more done without the noise. It, it actually aggravates them. It drives it drives one or two of them absolutely nuts that they can't control someone like me or or like you. I know they're not exactly happy with me. Um, I wonder if this is just uh, the nature of the beast because I, I wonder if you can have a groups like cannabis groups and whatever 
that can ever operate efficiently. Uh, that's a, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny that um, the tact I'm, I'm taking with some of the higher end conversations is everything that you're thinking about, remove the word hemp. Talk about biomaterials, talk about biocomposites, talk about natural fibers, not, you know, just forget hemp because you walk into a boardroom or into a Wall Street investment firm or any of the real player law firms or anything like that. And as soon as you say hemp, they're going to laugh you back out of the building. That is that is the pendulum swinging back on all of these half-truths. And the least I would love to see is some acknowledgement of the the horrible remains of the last eight eight years or so where we've got farmers that committed suicide because they put everything into this and were screwed over by some fly-by-night or we've got people who are changing their names and starting their business fresh or you know there are so many victims that are just not even getting the airspace of honor that you know we should be able to do better these are these are informative moments where okay, let's not do stuff that hurts people just because you want a new sports car. And unfortunately, there seems to be, I, I think it's a, the overall population right now, this socio, socioeconomic uh, philosophy of, of anarcho-capitalism. And it's maybe it's derivative of the last four years of presidency. Maybe it's derivative of the Tea Party mentality of, of, of Ayn Rand and, and whatnot. But the idea that uh, we can just abrogate a social contract and not care about our neighbor is it, it, it disgusts me it really does as an american where we're supposedly the e pluribus unum the fact that we are saying i don't care what happens to you as long as i get paid is just the wrong time for cannabis to be coming out unfortunately and do you, do you think the cash grab is coming at all levels from boutique up to big corporate or is it isolated? Uh, I think that there are different iterations of it. So you've got the folks like, uh, you know, the big players, the canopies, the cure leaves, the ianthus, the, these, these monsters, they're playing with house money and they're doing things in there. Eventually I'd like to think that that's going to come crashing down on them, but they seem to be operating with some sort of a blessing from on high no matter how hard they they fall someone's going to catch them and maybe that's just a derivative of having really powerful people that would get exposed i don't know but then we start getting down into some of these other state and regional entities and and it's a different sort of a game but you know what really kills me that no one wants to acknowledge is that for decades and you guys can attest to this for decades. All we heard about was big pharma, bad, big pharma, bad, big pharma, bad. And it wasn't about the ethics of pharma. It was about the money that they were aggregating. So as soon as we were able to say, all right, fine, you can have Epidiolex. We're still going to sell the heck out of CBD, make our own money. Oh, it's okay for, for us to screw over patients with potentially unclean product because it's not going to pharma. And it starts to make the entire thing somewhat hypocritical and, 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 and hollow, where all of these supposed social justice arguments that we had really are, have, been, have been cut off at the knees by greed. All right. Well, this is one of the things about the observation of this, is because when I first got in, 
I uh, blamed the people who were misleading other people. And, and it was like a one-sided thing. The thing that gets me about cannabis, and I've seen the correlation also in oil and gold, is that people who are totally rational in every other aspect of their life, when they get in cannabis, they lose their ever friggin' mind. Yeah. And yeah, no, there's, there's definitely a uh, there's some, uh, some sort of a psychosis there. <laughs> well, because I've been advising people for years, right? And they'll tell me, and invariably I'll look at what kind of infrastructure, how well capitalized. And 97% of them, I said, you're going to fail. Oh, yeah. And it, because they are. They're, one thing, they weren't farmers. They didn't have infrastructure. And they woefully underestimated how much of a cash flow they'd have to have for, for you know, at least a year and a half, two years. And then they will go out and do it anyway. And so this is the part that I just, which is the weird thing about this is, is I, my partner, Lee Crabtree, yeah, is one of the few rational people I know in cannabis who can actually objectively look at it like it's an ag, ag product and that if you grow too much, you stop growing it. But everybody else I knew wants that little, and, and the worst thing was, and I don't know if it was like that up in Vermont. <clears throat> but in our neck of woods, there was just enough money in that window, 218, 219, for people to decide to go all in. Yep. Hey, we got the OxyClean guy posted up here. <laughs> we've, got, we've got all these people who are, who are looking at it as this big cash crop. And uh, I heard tell secondhand that uh, he bottomed out his Lamb Lamborghini trying to get up to his uh, hemp field one time. Uh, but that's a different story. He bought his crew all, all brand new airstreams to live in. It's just, it, it all just became so weird. I, I didn't understand it. And I'm glad I got out when I did, because it was just, the truth was stranger than fiction for the longest time. But, uh, you know, what, what you described with Lee is, is it's akin to one of my early talking points, which is some farmers are growers, but no growers are farmers. And the idea there. <laughs> The idea there is that we've stolen everything from farmers. Can we at least give them the respect of the title? You know, we, we, yeah. we've, we've driven them out of business. We've caused them nothing but heartache. And all they do is try and feed us. Can we at least show the respect to the title as an earned thing rather than coming out of your basement saying, hey, I'm a farmer now. Uh, no, you're not. You're not. Well, the thing it got me was, is that um, I, I never... I came from a family and it was basically what, what they called truck farm. Nobody had more than an acre or so. And that yep. was sort of, sort of like it was. We weren't row croppers. Uh, so when I first got into hemp, all of a sudden I got exposed to row croppers because naively the first year we were going to try to do seed and the Canadian seed just did not work out in Tennessee. So the next year we thought, well, hell, we'll do fiber. So doing this, I, you know, came in contact with all these these farmers and you realized the margins that these guys do i mean if the price of corn in there you can get your profit off an acre might be a couple hundred dollars on corn if the prices aren't there so what pissed me off about the the industry and the thia and whatever yep. is they took advantage of the fact that 
at the time, row croppers were being crunched. They said, okay, here's a cash crop. And once again, they expected farmers to fund the whole damn thing. Yeah. And, and it just, I saw these people who got told bad things, got bad contracts, and on top of it, got given bad genetics. And at the end of it, you know, so would stand out on the edge and feel so well, guess, guess it wasn't meant to be and get in there freaking yeah. and go. And now I'm, I'm hoping that the pendulum will swing back because guess what? They keep beating through all these cannabinoids with D8 and stuff. Oh, yeah. At some point, if you want to have large scale cannabinoids, you're going to have to start contracting farmers in. And I just hope to hell they get, you know, I'm serious. If you want this, you got to pay up front. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I am right there with you. And that's, uh, that's something where, you know, I'm, I'm work, one of the folks that I'm working with on a, on a larger scale, they've been post decort. They've been basically giving all of their herd back to the farmers just as a, we have no use for it. And I said, well, you know, if you want to, if you want to put that together, I could probably make it a revenue stream for you. So, you know, there's a massive amount of clean post decord herd that I've got access to right now. And, you know, having that conversation with different folks with, uh, you know, Barrett Dash out in Oregon and uh, Melissa Nelson and Mike Liago at uh, IHempX and a couple of other folks, uh, Steve Halton. How do we do this in such a way that we're not racing to the bottom? You know, we want to encourage the development of an industry but we also don't want to cut the farmers off at the knee out of the gates so when you've got access to a massive amount of what is you know projected to become a commodity how do you responsibly enter into the market such that you're not putting all the pressure on one point and you're helping to set the price rather than i'm going to undercut all these other people so that i sell my stuff faster that's not the way to do it. And that's what a lot of people were doing with, with distillate and isolate. They're still doing it. Yeah, they're trying. <laughs> well, that's the thing where we're at, you know, at Tennessee Homegrown, is that we batten down the hatches. Just yep. straight up, we got rid of everything. We're basically growing this year for photo ops, you know, because of marketing. But yep. we don't have to grow. I mean, we can, it's still at this point, buy it cheaper than we can grow it so yeah then it becomes an, an applied an applied concept to, you know what what else can you do with a smaller footprint that helps to benefit your business and and the marketing clearly is is something that that is beneficial to you and some folks go with you know the genetics and i don't want to go too far down that wormhole myself I've got a good background in understanding things, but I, I, you know, there are people who have their PhDs in genetics and they can have that portion. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with them over uh, diploids and triploids and whether or not they can smell them <laughs> from a mile away. <laughs> well, the, the, all right. We kind of got digressed in here, but, sure. but well, no, it's my fault. I'm <laughs> just trying to say, one thing you got a lot of stuff to stay and say, and I want to try to get all on it. At what point, though, is are we still waiting on the consumer? One, I one of the things, and I, you probably see me write about quip about it, is all these people who post these damn memes. Yeah, about how the friggin' hemp is going to change the world, 
and will not go out of their way to buy anything made out of friggin' hemp. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I completely understand that perspective. And that's a, uh, I've been describing it to people loosely as a, uh, a push-pull environment where, you know, without the pull of a market demand, then you're basically, it's, you know, the, the ancient tale of Sisyphus. You're, you're trying to roll a stone up a hill. You need something to be able to pull from the other side. And if there's no market demand, then there's really no reason to, to continue to push very hard. You know, there are, there are other opportunities to avail yourself to as that redevelops. And, you know, like I said, we burned, not we, not you and I necessarily, but the, the, the industry itself, the ecosystem burned the concept of hemp and the concept of CBD. And it's just, it's, it's appalling to be in some conversations where, you know, I'm in a support group for my health conditions and I got people saying, oh yeah, I take D8. And it's like, you're on a transplant list and you're taking unqualified Delta 8 THC from someone's bathtub. Do you not see the potential problem here? Well, you do know we make D8, right? Well, yeah, and that's fine. <laughs> I'm not I'm not knocking the general concept. I'm knocking the idea of, you know, gas station CBD. Well, I, you know, gas station sushi. But <laughs> this, this is the only bad thing that freaks me out. And I hate about this is that we are in a market where we really do try to be compliant. Third party testing, yeah. certified kitchen, the whole bit. Yet we have to compete against people who I'm, I'm serious. It, I have no idea what's being sold out there, because, yep. but it's horrible. It's one of the things that the, what do you call them? I continually have people wanting to try their damn products, right? And I hate trying other people's products. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I'm serious. It's just awful out there. But then the flip side to that is, is that the government does not seem how to, to be able to approach anything even handedly. This, this entire conversation just totally screwed them over where they're, they're keystone cops at this point. They, they don't know what letter agency gets what. And they've, they've figured out a good amount in the last couple of years. But when you think that it took them four years to be able to implement a, a, the, the newer farm bill, <laughs> it's just like, okay, who does what does who does what? And, you know, I've told people that my biggest fear isn't the DEA and it isn't the FDA. It's the freaking TTB. It's, it's the IRS will bring in tax and trade and tax and trade is also the secret service. And they have the kind of wherewithal to bring in anyone they want. The IRS is pretty well armed themselves. Yeah, you think? Uh, yeah. I mean, that, the, the whole thing about it is we have still have 280E. And for those folks who don't know, yeah. what two, two, I'm going to explain it real quick. For those folks who do not know what two, 280E is, it's a statute done by the IRS to be able to charge income tax to, for basically an illegal product. Yep. And their, their whole concept was that you could do not deduct anything after production. So... <laughs> Here it is. They want the money, and but they don't want to do any of these other things. And yet there is how many billion dollar industry now 
in United States that's quasi legal, probably 12, 13, 14. Yeah. Million, yeah. Might even be more. And they still can't deal with it. And it's like the USDA. Oh my God, my this the newest thing with the USDA trying to oversee the production of cannabinoids has got to be the most ludicrous thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh, I know. <laughs> so, so, so you 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 caught me on a whole other one. <laughs> well, but I mean, it's it like I said, the USDA is going to come in and control hemp derived cannabinoids, but the USDA doesn't want to touch anything to do in the rec states with high THC cannabis. Well, what you described with 280E is effectively what I think is best described as a, a shakedown. And that's what they're doing. And that's what they're getting away with. But uh, with regards to the USDA and cannabinoid oversight, it, it, it's one, one of the things that's really frustrated me is that uh, the, the academic environment is such that we've got a lot of colleges that think that all of a sudden they can become experts on stuff that you and I have been working decades on and we're not allowed at that plate. We're the ones that should be in the conversation necessarily more than we are, yet we're not eligible for the funds to be able to develop this properly. So we've got a lot of posturing from the academics. They're on top of an ivory tower and it, it inverts. It inverts the model where a land-grant university's existence is to help private business, not vice versa. These guys are basically living grant to grant. Oh, yeah. And so it's like, oh, what's hot topic? I bet we can get a grant on that. Yeah. And because so, I've had some of them call me up because they're wanting to try to basically probing me for ideas that they can propose to get grants off of. And you have people literally don't even know they come from a world where most drugs are alkaloids. So you try to explain to them, well, you know, deriving cannabinoids from, from cannabis is more like, you know, oil. You know, it's, it's almost like a distillation, petroleum distillation. And it just goes, what? And it is. They, do, they don't understand it. And they don't want us to understand it any more than what they have to to get a damn grant. Yeah. Uh, you know, the one thing I can say is that, uh, thankfully, in theory, the USDA's round of grant money that they're putting out, that they've been ballyhooing, uh, I don't know how much is actually going to go towards hemp innovation, even though we keep trying to flex that it, that, that these things will, I, I'm still not sold, kind of like with the uh, trade agreement with China, where China's going to buy hemp. Well, no, actually, well, not. China's, China's not going to buy U.S. hemp. Why would they buy U.S. hemp? <laughs> they're the largest producer on the planet there's no obligation it's just a it's like a byline off a byline off a byline it was included and that if you want to do victory lap over that man uh, you can count me out you know we look at the big amount of money for climate resilience that that the usda has announced and this is the first time that i've seen where they're allowing for-profit businesses to apply Prior to this, the past few years, it's been few and far between that they've let anything but academics and nonprofits ap apply for any of the grant funding. So back to Vermont. Yes, sir. We have all this legacy. <laughs> Why has it taken so long for REC in Vermont as far as stores and stuff to, to, to take effect? 
Now, there are a couple of different layers to that, but the most obvious ones are Vermont is a, uh, it's not a referendum state. We actually had to pass it through the legislature and not by, by, vo by vote tally. So as a result, that takes a, you know, it takes election cycles where it's hard to get someone elected on just cannabis when there are so many other things that we need our elected officials to do. Thankfully, you know, it's a small state, but has an extremely large and easily accessed legislative committee of everything. Someone like myself, I could go down and sit in committees without having to announce myself in advance or anything like that and, and present ideas. And, and oftentimes they were well received, provided you're not high when you go, provided you're not a jerk when you go, you you know, respect Robert's rules. And I do all of these things. And I think you can appreciate that I am, I present well and speak well. And as a result, it was, it was something where I was able to do that for some time. And then, you know, all of a sudden the dispensaries had their fingers in every pot and they were, you know, I, I've got so many instances of malfeasance at the state level where not elected officials, but anointed or full-time salaried types were actually double timing with some of these uh, special interests behind the scenes and they were tilting tilting the playing field from within so you know the one that was in that Caroleaf invested in uh, they've got people in every freaking aspect of, of the state whether it's department of public safety or agency of agriculture or health or whoever and it's hard to battle against that where they're tip, tipping everything in their favor. So for them, having one of five licenses in the state to actually sell medical marijuana, what was their hurry? They're already making millions. And as a result, that there was no urgency where they could have used that same leverage in, their, in, in favor of everyone else in the state. But they, why should they? You know, they, all they're well, doing would, all they'd be doing is opening competition. So we needed the legislature to be able to put something in front of the governor and we've got a Republican governor and he let it go into law without signing it. And now then he sandbagged the entire process of putting a control board together by like eight months. So they're racing to get things together right now. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's starting to level back out. We've got some good people and it's, it's catching up, but you're right. It should have happened a decade ago. How many dis uh producer licenses are they going to have first year so this is a really neat thing that i can say is very very much vermont and not like the the rest of the nation and that is they're capping the top end but not the bottom end so there will the dispensaries themselves of which there are three owners of five licenses will each have fifteen thousand square feet max the next tier is either five or ten and those i think are unlimited but not a lot of people are going after them and then no cap on 1000 square foot licenses. So and anyone can get a 1000 and grow in their basement or their backyard or whatever. So they're trying to enable as many individuals as possible rather than isolate it to just uh, a few at the top. Curious though, lag time between when people got producers license and when people can sell it. You know, truth be told, you could drive a van through pretty much every VSA in the state. What's a yeah. VSA? Uh, Vermont state, uh, Vermont statute. Okay. All so right. basically, basically every law is referred to as a VSA in the state. But, uh, you know, it, when, for example, when, when the state uh, created its hemp rule, but didn't align it with, with the feds, it was 15 bucks. You could get a, a license to cultivate hemp, but there was no testing. 
there was no call for THC limits. So basically you get a hemp license to grow whatever you wanted for the first few years. <laughs> and then, you know, it's, it's one of those things where even now they're trying to button it down, but someone like myself, I see the gaps. I'm not going to advertise them because, <laughs> yeah. but well, so you know, here, here's an example. How do you define what's a mature plant? What's an immature plant? Well, <laughs> relative. <laughs> botanically, I know that, you know, the, the, the plant starts to show its maturity at the third to fifth internode. So that's theoretically a mature plant. But I think what they were theoretically referring to is when it's fully flowered out. And these are two very different things. Now, the question there, there is, is this rollout going to be like every other rec rollout? And at first, prices are just going to be ridiculous. And then there'll be an overproduction and then prices just drop to the, you know, drop precipitously. So what we're looking at on the, the financial profiling is uh, probably a five-year window where everything's going to, to hold pretty steady. One thing about Vermont is that with only 650,000 residents, the vast majority of the market that we're viewing is, is the tourism market. You'll have all these Canadians coming down from Quebec who can't bring their gear across the border, but they can buy a bag on the other side. All these people from Massachusetts who come up to go skiing for the weekend and you know they forgot their bag or they want another bag or they want a different flavor. I mean, this is a tourist state. So we're not going to be necessarily feeding our, our own people. We're going to be a very boutique oriented, not a massive volume, but there, there's, there's going to be a, you know, 20 to 40,000 pound a year demand, pretty standard. And the prices out of the gates wholesale are looking at two to five a pound. Whoa, 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 back up. How much? 2,000 to 5,000 a pound. I'm going to move. <laughs> No, I'm just no. saying that's if you can get 5k for a pound of flour oh my god I got you know I work with a company you know I don't work with them I kind of work with them out in Washington State uh, Columbia River Cannabis you know if you can get two thousand dollars for a pound of indoor flour that's huge yeah well it's a different it's a different type of model there as well because you've got you know, massive growing opportunities, whereas they're going to cap the ability to do that. And the only way we're going to be able to create a glut is if, you know, someone's overproducing or someone's smuggling in. Do you, do you think the timeline will allow for production this year or do you think it'll come online next year? Oh, we're going to be producing this year. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also working with folks in New York state where Anyone who's grown hemp for CBD or CBG for the past two years consistently and reported to the state has been given a one-year carve-out. So everyone who's grown hemp for cannabinoids for the past two years, legit, gets to grow an acre of rec outdoors. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. How's that going to work out? That's a, I mean, a lot of folks don't realize, you know, there's, acreage for hemp and cbd which is biomass and then there's acreage for like smokable flour and an acre that's a boatload of smokable flour surely is but you know they the the folks that i know are are well engaged 
in the conversation and they're they're doing the estimates and they're you know they're they're aiming low because they're seeing a lot of stuff that's low in in the new york city and uh, you know they're coming to me and saying please tell me that the numbers aren't going to stay there. And I said, look, what you've got to look at is New York City is ruled by the biker gangs and the cartels. They are going to do everything they can to avoid being called out by a regulated market. <laughs> it's the same thing in California. These folks are going to try and undercut the regulated market. But you know what? Not everyone wants PGR weed. Not everyone wants this, this crap stuff. So what we're looking at here in Vermont is, you know, very, it's like our cheese. It's top, top of the top of the top of the top. We're, we're, we're not going after quantity. We're going after quality. And that's where aligning with my friend who's got a breeding business uh, makes it a little bit easier in that I can see the seed through the cultivation to the sale aspect with whatever model we work on. So we, we don't want to have big grows and I'm, I'm consulting with a bunch of different folks, a bunch of different teams. And, and it's a, it's a very boutique arrangement utilizing the best and latest technologies. And we'll just be more efficient with a better product. Right. And, yeah. and even still, you know, the, the numbers in mass, they're, they're still seeing five and $6,000 pounds. Is that because the standard of living, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of that. Yeah. The thing I'm curious about, is it because you have a more sophisticated customer? Because generally in cannabis, the bang for the buck still kind of rules. It, it does, but we do have the more sophisticated customers. You take a look at some of the players that are getting involved at the high end here, and you've got the, the family that owns Burton Snowboards. You've got the family that owns uh, Green uh, Gardener Supply and 7th Generation and, and Magic Hat Brewing. You've got... Uh, You've got the folks that owned Ben and Jerry's. You've got all of these people who are at the top end of the social social scale. And they're creating that boutique kind of carnival atmosphere where there will be room for the dirt farmers, but there'll also be a lot for the tourists. And, you know, the craft brewing industry is probably the model most are working with here in Vermont where we've got you know, I don't know what the latest number was, but we were pushing 50 or so craft brewers in the state with 650,000 people, way more beer than we could possibly handle. And people come and spend weekends, if not weeks here, going from brewery to brewery to brewery. And we're going to be doing the same thing with, uh, with the cannabis concept. Well, it sounds like Vermont's uh, got a much more, what do you call it, thought out approach to rec than a lot of other places do. Yeah, and, and you know, when, when you take a look at how the state functions in terms of being a thought leader, look at the GMO labeling laws, which were developed in part with Will Allen and, uh, and David Chapman. And Will Allen was one of Dr. Bronner's six that was arrested outside the DEA office for planting seeds. Uh, and David Chapman has gone on and founded the Real Organic Project because uh, that's in protest of the USDA's NOP allowing for hydroponics. And we've got farmers that have been doing it for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, very successfully who, you know, they're, they're making uh, mid six figures a year just selling vegetables because their stuff is that good. Which it, ultimately, it still boils down to the farmer. Yep. It does. You know, we've been talking about 50 minutes here, Joel. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm going to try to wind this up a little bit. Um, you get now you got to come back. You do. Jesus, you, there's so many things <laughs> I didn't get to ask you about. Yeah, yeah we need a part two. Part yeah. Two. Hey, look, the first time I sat down with a local uh, local journalist, she had carved out 45 minutes for me. And at three hours, she's just like, I, I could keep going, but I'm running out of time. And I was like, well, you know, whatever. I'm, I spend a lot of time thinking about these things, and uh, I am <laughs> for for better or worse. Yes, exactly. Well, mostly for better these days. A, a lot of the demons have uh, have gone away, but you know, at, at the worst, it was you know death threats and a private investigator on me, being doxxed, being catfished, being receiving death threats, having people report me to the DEA, and the DEA calling me up and saying, "Hey, this guy reported you." <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, I know. Because I was already working with the DEA. They so, were already shaking me down every every month. So why was the animosity towards you so extreme? Because I was not related to anyone. Because I was an unknown. Because I was smarter than most people. Because I was actually doing it my own way. And because I wasn't letting people rip me off or put me in the corner. I was taking, I was stealing the thunder of people that felt that they were entitled you know, when, when you've got a 70-year-old multimillionaire using my talking points in a press release about uh, social, social justice, and I'm like, how does a 70-year-old multi-multi-millionaire argue for social justice when he's all about aggregating control and wealth? It just does not jive. And they really didn't like me for calling them out. Well, we're going to wind this up, which is now the point shameless self-promotion time <laughs> so joel where can people get a hold of you what projects are you working on and whatever information you want to uh, give us right now this would be a great time you know I, i'm i'm not really taking on new projects so much as winding them down but i can say that uh one that i'm i'm putting some some steam behind is is my friend's uh breeding company goat and monkey seeds they can be purchased either direct or off of uh, seeds here now. That's uh, basically where he utilizes legacy forum cuts. So all of the stable original genetics and creates some really, really good stuff that's in a lot of dispensaries around the country. So that's a, uh, we're sitting on a pretty, pretty big stockpile of feminized seeds right now and uh, looking to start moving some of that inventory. So anyone wants a good deal on bulk uh, high-end gear. Now, is that high, high THC or high, uh, high that, CBD? High THC. So we're talking okay. uh, Trinity, Triangle Kush, uh, you know, Chocolate Diesel, all the good stuff. And how do they get a hold of you? Uh, probably the best route would just be looking me up on LinkedIn. Okay. And they would look under? Yeah, just my name, Joel Bedard. Okay, cool. All right. Well, Step, you, anything else? This is fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to part two. I was just reading, it looks like the Boston Beer Company is backing Magic Hat's research for CBD. Is that Yeah, true? so that's that's uh, Jim Coke yeah. invested in Alchemy and Science. And Alchemy and Science was a play of uh, the founder of, of Magic Hat. He sold that out for the most part to... The company that was Pyramid Brewing, and then it was bought up by Florida Ice, which is a Costa Rican company. So there isn't really a direct thing anymore, other than the okay. largest. I was curious and, about uh, that. 
I was I was the one that basically broke ground. I worked with at one point twelve different microbreweries here in the state of Vermont in different variations of uh, of hemp concoctions, and uh, and I have a few tricks up my sleeve that were never released. So if you know anyone that uh, wants to play that game, I'm more than happy to spring that out. And uh, you know, if anyone wants to try and get in front of any of the things that I do, note that. Uh, you know, my wife's a VP with Keurig Dr. Pepper, and I've got friends in multiple major multinational companies. So huh. it, you, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in conversations that most people don't get into. <laughs> gotcha. Great. Well, then I'm going to wind this up. You folks have been listening to Full Contact Cannabis. It is sponsored by Tennessee Homegrown. Uh, I'm with my co-host, Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media. And I'm with Joel J.T. Bedard. And we really do appreciate you listening to us. And until next time, folks, remember to keep one eye on the weather and the other eye on the market. Outstanding. Thanks, gentlemen. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com. Howdy, folks. This is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Hemp Farmer. And I just wanted to thank all you people that have been listening to us, downloading, and also heading on over to our sponsor, Tennessee Homegrown, and buying their wonderful products. We can't do it without you guys, and we know that. And we will always listen, and we will always be there for you as far as our products and also information about our products. Tennessee Homegrown, once again, wants to thank all of you wonderful folks for listening to our podcast and buying our products.